Chapter 14, The Meaning of Power In Armenia, 10 of our tractors introduced by a relief committee plowed 1,000 acres in 11 days. This work would have required 1,000 oxen and 500 men, and neither the oxen nor the men were available. In French Morocco, the Berbers still thresh grain by stamping with their bare feet on a small quantity placed in a bag. Three men can thus thresh about two bushels an hour. A threshing machine, drawing its power from a tractor, threshed 90 bushels an hour. That is, the machinery in one hour did as much as 135 men treading bags could do in the same period. Russia has famines, in spite of its immense areas of land suitable for cultivation, because its agrarian population cannot, with primitive methods, produce a sufficient surplus over and above their own requirements to feed the cities, or in emergency, to feed areas devastated by drought. Under present circumstances, if the surplus were produced, it could not be transported. When the Soviet government asked our aid, we told them to buy automobiles before they bought tractors, in order to get transportation. That they did. Later they bought tractors, so that now they have from 16 to 20,000 tractors at work. In Russia, they calculate that one tractor does the work of 100 oxen and 50 men. The saving is even greater than appears, because the upkeep of the oxen alone would ordinarily take a large portion of the crops harvested. It has not been difficult to teach the peasants to operate the machinery. The Russian peasant young man has an almost romantic regard for farm machinery. Official tests of the tractor in England show that it costs, every factor being taken into consideration, just one half as much to plow with a tractor as to plow with horses. The tractor is being used to revive the agriculture of Greece, and there is hardly a country that has not some tractors. Now, what does this mean? The peasants of many parts of Europe and of the near and far east are poor beyond any knowledge that we have of poverty. Our poorest poor whites, even our tramps on the road who are poor by profession, have more of this world's goods and certainly more comforts than most of these peasants. Even those who in this country will not or know not how to work for a living are really unable to be as poor as the peasant or the coolie. And this is because we use so much developed power in this country that even the most ingeniously indolent cannot escape its effects. And at that, we are using only a small fraction of the power we ought to use, and much of what we are using is being used wastefully. Of that, more later. One point stands out above all others. This country uses many times more developed power per head than does any other country. We use far more in our factories, which is significant and easily comprehended. But what is much more significant, and not so easily comprehended, is that we use many times more power in transportation than we do in manufacturing. A very liberal estimate of all the power used in industry is 50 million horsepower, while our own company alone, up to December 1st, 1925, had put out in cars and tractors a total available horsepower of 292,007,030. By no means all of these cars and tractors are still in service, but it is likely that more than 80% of them are, and to their power must be added the power contributed by all the other automobile and tractor makers, and also the power developed on the railroads. 
The effect of cheap and convenient transportation is profound. It is not so long ago that a man of moderate means would live and die within a hundred miles of the place where he was born. His mode of living would differ little from that of his father, and indeed of his forefathers. That is still true throughout most of the world today, but it is not true in America. One may see, standing outside of almost any large building operation, working men's cars, bearing the license plates of half a dozen states. Nobody has ever disputed that the best of all education is to be gained from travel, but travel was formerly the prerogative of the well-to-do. Now everyone can and does travel. Our state boundaries mean nothing. We could not have a war among our states because we have no cloistered states with separate identities and interests. Our civil war could not be repeated. If Europe had cheap and easy transportation, the present artificial barriers between countries would quickly vanish because they would be an intolerable nuisance. It is not strange, therefore, that transportation has almost wholly changed this country. The railroads built the country by making the exchange of products easy and convenient, but it remained for the automobile to break down all the barriers, because a railroad can only follow its tracks while an automobile can go anywhere. We no longer have any real isolated districts. We have no states or sections set apart from the world, excepting here and there in the mountains, and the number of people so isolated is negligible when compared to the whole population. And so, too, the wants of the people are increasing, and the general standard of living in this country has probably increased more rapidly within the past 15 years than in all the years previous. Having a high standard of living may or may not be civilization. That we do not know. But we think that civilization, in terms of material well-being, indicates a degree of intellectual well-being. For without economic independence, there can certainly be no intellectual independence. If a man spends 12 hours a day hunting his daily bread, he is not going to have much time left over for clear thinking. It is natural and proper that this new era into which we are entering should be distinguished for the time being by the devotion of much of our power resource to transportation. The automobile is not a thing of itself. It is just a way of using power. Our civilization, such as it is, rests on cheap and convenient power. The nation started with water power, but could handle only small quantities of it with the water wheel, which wasted more power than it used. And so, with the invention of the steam engine, the fine natural force of flowing water was disregarded for coal power, made workable through the steam engine. Now, with the ability cheaply and conveniently to transport power in the form of electricity, we are able, through the water turbine, to handle any amount of water power and to transport it as electricity with all the advantages of quantity production. Coal, we have learned, is not merely to be burned for its heat, but is a valuable chemical, of which heat is only one of the byproducts. This heat energy is used to create steam, and through a steam turbine, finally turned into electrical energy. Then we have the internal combustion engine, such as used in the automobile with volatile oils, and in the diesel engine with heavier oils. We have more sources of power than ever before, and we are looking around for additional sources. There is somewhere ahead of us the utilization of atomic energy. We are everywhere searching for more and more power. 
the wasteful little public utility power station is giving way to the big, centrally located power station. We are beginning to realize that the political and financial conception of developed power as something to regulate and jockey with is antisocial. Our public service commissions, with their regulation of rates, should not be allies of the financial forces which think of a generating plant as something on which to pile quantities of stocks and bonds, the returns on which are to be secured not by serving the public, but by a franchise, a monopoly granted by some public service commission. We, the people, actually pay tax money to support commissions whose sole duty it is to see that public utility corporations shall not be allowed to ruin themselves through bad management. It is just another case of how ill-informed reformers play into the hands of shrewd financiers. These commissions were erected at the behest of the reformers to save the people from excessive charges by public service corporations, as though the people would have paid excessive rates. The public quickly reforms an ill-managed corporation by not buying its product. But the commissions which stepped in, ostensibly to save the people, really only save the corporations from their own folly. Thus, we have a situation in which the public service corporation is guaranteed some kind of an existence regardless of its management. This is against the interests of the public because the corporation is not put into the position of either serving or going out of business. The public interest demands that corporations be thrown in to sink or swim. No one need worry about corporate oppression, for giving bad service destroys more quickly than can law. But the hopeful sign is that men are every day learning that the real profits of power generation are to be earned through giving it cheaply and conveniently to the public, and that, as compared with these profits, the profits of financial juggling are petty. The source of material civilization is developed power. If one has this developed power at hand, then a use for it will easily be found. One way to use the power is through a machine, and just as we often think of the automobile as a thing of itself instead of as a way of using power, so also do we think of the machine as something of itself instead of as a method of making power effective. We speak of a machine age. What we are entering is a power age, and the importance of the power age lies in its ability, rightly used with the wage motive behind it, to increase and cheapen production, so that all of us may have more of this world's goods. The way to liberty, the way to equality of opportunity, the way from empty phrases to actualities, lies through power. The machine is only an incident. The function of the machine is to liberate man from brute burdens and release his energies to the building of his intellectual and spiritual powers for conquests in the fields of thought and higher action. The machine is the symbol of man's mastery of his environment. One has only to go to other lands to see that the only slave left on earth is man minus the machine. We see men and women hauling wood and stone and water on their backs. We see artisans clumsily spending long hours and incredible toil for a paltry result. We see the tragic disproportion between laborious hand culture of the soil and the meager fruits thereof. We meet with unbelievably narrow horizons, low standards of life, poverty always on the edge of disaster. 
These are the conditions where men have not learned the secrets of power and method, the secrets of the machine. To release himself to more human duties, man has trained beasts to carry burdens. The ox team and camel represent man's mind plus brute strength. The sail is man's release from the slavery of the oar. The use of the swift horse was man's dim sensing that time had value for himself and his concerns. Did man thus increase his slavery, or did he increase his liberty? It is true that the machine has sometimes been used by those who owned it not to liberate men, but to exploit them. This was never accepted by society as right. It has always been challenged, and as the use of the machine became more widespread, it effectually checked the misuse that had been made of it. The right and serviceable use of the machine always makes unprofitable and at last impossible the abuse of it. That is our idea of the import of the machine. But behind the machine is power, and especially hydroelectric power. We already have nine hydroelectric plants, and two of them we developed from government dams. That is, we took over the dams and added hydroelectric plants to conserve the power which was going to waste. We are increasing our Fordson power plant so that it will soon have an output of approximately half a million horsepower. We have bought our own coal fields so that our supplies of coal might not be interrupted, for in 1922 we had to shut down for several days and throw hundreds of thousands of men out of work just because the controllers of the miners and the controllers of the mines could not agree upon wages and terms of work. Of the two dams leased from the government, one is at St. Paul and the other at Green Island, both of which plants have been described in an earlier chapter. On another very large plant, we made a bid which was never acted on by Congress. That is Muscle Shoals, which is a large water power unit capable of developing several hundred thousand horsepower and erected by the government for the fixation of atmospheric nitrogen during the war. It has not been completed, and it represents a large amount of money and, what is more important, a large amount of potential power going to waste in a section of the country that is in need of power. Our intentions concerning Muscle Shoals were set out in my life and work, but later we withdrew, and the reasons for our withdrawal were given in an interview with the collaborator of this book, which was published in Collier's Weekly. In that interview, I said in part, More than two years ago, we made the best bid we knew how to make. No definite action has been taken on it. A simple affair of business, which should have been decided by anyone within a week, has become a complicated political affair. We are not in politics, and we are in business. We do not intend to be drawn into politics. We have been and still are deeply interested in Muscle Shoals as a national asset. That concerns every one of us as citizens. I have two main principles with regard to Muscle Shoals. First, it should be operated as a combined industrial unit. Second, it should make nitrates, which will serve as fertilizer in times of peace and as the basis of munitions in times of war. The manufacture of nitrates, of course, would not exhaust the power. The larger part would be available for general manufacturing. But first of all, Muscle Shoals should be jealously watched by the nation as a most important defensive source. It is shameful that it has become the football of politics. The best way to maintain it as a ready defense source in war 
is to operate it as an industrial unit in peace. Its proper utilization will give the South that industrial impulse and facility which it needs. To permit it to be exploited would be a grave error. We have in all 16 mines in Kentucky and West Virginia, and when we took over the first mine some years ago, it was with the full realization that we were entering an industry about which we knew little or nothing, which was strongly unionized in most sections, and in which the highest business practices had never found a foothold. Coal mining is one of our most backward industries. Our problem was to pay our standard wages, to provide a full year's work for the miners, and to put all industrial affairs on a man-to-man -man basis, the only basis on which we operate. First of all, we cleaned up the mines and their surroundings. A mine can be clean. Such of the houses as were not worth painting, we replaced with good houses that had bathrooms. We put down sidewalks and hard surface roads. We put in streetlights and a recreation building, and tried in every manner that we knew to make the little towns into first-class places in which to live. We put in our regular wage scale, and the men are now earning about twice as much as other miners in the field. The miners have proved themselves to be fine fellows. They only needed the chance, and their outlook has been broadened. In one camp alone, some 200 men now own automobiles. During the summer months, we ship coal to the head of the lakes to store an industrial supply for the Northwest. This helps to keep our mines in operation all the year round. Any reductions which may be necessary in our working force, on account of seasonal conditions, are always very slight, and we never take any men off the payroll or reduce their wages. For some of the men, we find work in cleaning up around the mines and the towns. Other men we send to the Fordson plant and give them jobs until full-time production is needed. Part of our surplus coal we ship on our own lake boats out to the northwest, where it is handled in carload lots by our sales agents. But there is not a great deal of surplus. Our own plants will shortly take all that we can produce. One of the curses of coal mining, one of the curses of all trades, is that often a man will remain idle unless work in his particular line shows up. No man in our employment considers himself as fixed in any particular line of work. He is ready, whenever the necessity arises, to take on some sort of work he may never have heard of before. It is not good for the country to have men regard themselves exclusively as miners, engineers, or machinists. Every man is the better for having several strings to his bow. We are planning to locate industries near the mines to have interchangeable employment, and probably we shall eventually generate a large portion of our power at mines. Our coal costs us less than the market price over a period, although we have done little in the way of devising new methods of mining. We merely use machinery wherever possible and cut out the red tape of fixed jobs. We could often buy distressed coal for less, but we do not want coal which represents a loss to the producers. We cannot afford to be a party to a speculative product. In the use of the coal at the Fordson Powerhouse, we have the advantage of big business in being able to treat coal as a chemical, use the derivatives in our business, and burn what remains. We use both the high-temperature and the low-temperature distillation of coal, although on the low-temperature we are just making a beginning. The processes are well known. Most of our processes are well known. It is the combination of processes that counts, and the result is that out of coal, which costs us about $5 a ton delivered at the plant, 
we get a good return per ton out of byproducts, which gives us fuel for the boilers at a very low cost. We decided after a long research that the most economical way of using steam was through the turbine, and we shall soon have eight turbines of 62,500 horsepower each at the Fordson. Some of these are already in operation, and all of them we are building ourselves because they are of our own design and also because we found that we could turn them out ourselves faster than any manufacturer could guarantee delivery. These turbines are identical. One of the outstanding features is the generator. It is one-third less in size than any other of the same capacity, and it is the first on which all mica insulation has been used. It also uses a radically different system of ventilation from that used on other generators. It delivers current at 13,200 volts. Each of these units produces as much power as the whole Highland Park powerhouse. The boiler equipment consists of eight boilers with double-ended furnaces using powdered coal and blast furnace gas as fuels. The gas entering near the bottom of the furnace and the powdered coal 25 feet above are so proportioned in amounts and the interior of the boiler is so arranged that they will reach a maximum temperature before striking the boiler tubes. After these gases have passed over the boiler tubes, they circulate through superheaters to the tops of the boilers, the interior height of which is 70 feet, and thence up the eight 330-foot brick stacks which furnish a natural draft. Very little smoke, however, comes from the stacks, for combustion is practically complete owing to the nature of the fuels. Not only is there a maximum production of heat by this process, but the proportion of heat that may be transferred to the water averages as high as 90%. Another economy of such a fueling process is the lack of ashes and slag, there being only a small residue left in the furnace, as against a much larger amount when coal is burned in strikers. When boilers are subjected to the high temperature caused by such efficient fueling, the furnace walls are apt to settle and crack, increasing maintenance costs. This is partially overcome by supporting the boilers from an overhead steel framework, rather than by employing foundations directly beneath. The use of fuels, which combine so thoroughly in burning, together with the practice of feeding the boiler with condensed steam, with distilled water for the makeup, to eliminate trouble from boiler scale, makes possible the continuous operation of the boilers night and day for six months or a year, instead of the usual shutdown every two months or so. In line with this is the equipment, which makes possible a shift of fuels from coal and gas to tar and oil in cases of emergency. Such a change may be made without shutting down the furnace and without lowering the temperature or in any way the operating efficiency of the apparatus. The only tools in this boiler house are a slice bar, a poker, and a shovel. These are nickel-plated and in a glass case. The entire interior of the boiler house is painted dark gray and enameled, and the attendants dress in white uniforms and caps. One attendant watches four furnaces, and it is his duty, after the flow of gas has been set at the proper amount, so to regulate the speed at which the coal is fed as to maintain a constant steam pressure in the boilers. The steam generated enters the turbines at a pressure of 230 pounds per square inch and a temperature of more than 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Here it is directed against a number of steel blades or buckets arranged fan-wise along the rim of a large wheel. 
Just as a current of air directed against a fan will make the fan wheel revolve, so the steam turns the first wheel of the turbine rotor. When it leaves the wheel at the opposite side, its own direction has been changed, and it is following a circular path, opposite in direction to that of the turbine wheel. If allowed to strike the blades on the next wheel at once, the steam would tend to turn this second wheel backward, and therefore a set of directional blades or nozzles fastened to the stationary housing are so placed that the steam is turned in the proper direction once more, and then thrown against the second set of blades. In this manner, the steam follows a zigzag path through nineteen wheels, comprising fifteen stages of progressive expansion and consequent decrease of pressure of the steam. In order to take care of the expanded steam, the blades in each stage are larger than those of the preceding one, the last set being 26 inches long, whereas those of the first stage are only three and a half inches in length. The steam causes the rotor of the turbine to make 1,200 revolutions a minute in the process of losing its pressure against the turbine blades. The whole construction of the turbines and boilers is in some respects unusual, but the differences are highly technical and have no place here. But because this method of utilizing coal is so much more efficient than any we have used before, we are scrapping our powerhouse at Highland Park, which used to be our pride, and also greatly improving our power plant at Fordson, which when we built it, we thought could not be bettered. And perhaps in another decade, our new power plant will be obsolete, and then we shall scrap it. We do not presently need half a million horsepower for our operations at the Fordson and Highland Park, but we shall shortly need it in both these plants on our railroad, which we are electrifying, and in our electric furnaces, for this is very cheap power. And the cheapness of this power practically generated as a byproduct indicates something of the relation which an industry might have with the surrounding country. It is possible, in any great manufacturing center, that the coal used for power in the factories could also be used for heating the homes of the people. That is, it is possible to use every piece of coal twice, once for its industrial uses and once for its domestic uses. A car of coal delivered at a factory could be used to do all that is required by the factory. The chemicals, gases, tars, and other ingredients could be extracted, and the remaining coke, a pure fuel, could be sent on to the homes. This has been done with great success and economy. It is no longer an experiment. For several winters we have demonstrated on a large scale that not only can the coal be used twice, but the coke can profitably be sold to our employees at a considerably lower price than that made by the trade. With all the great factories coking their coal, thus providing a double use for it, other economies will come. A great waste will be prevented. When one thinks of the precious elements which have been consumed for decades on the furnace grates, all going up in smoke and being lost to human use, it becomes clear that the new method has not come too soon. Not only are the elements of coal being saved in modernized factories and other numerous fields of endeavor enriched by the materials thus saved, but we are coming to see that our factories may become public service institutions. In the modern use of coal, gas is produced, and gas is a public utility. That part of the gas, which is not used in direct processes of manufacture, can be turned over to the community. The fertilizing elements extracted from coal can be utilized on the farms. And then there is the possible effect of all this on the transportation problem. As our great factories go into these economies, 
which really consists in getting greater usage out of their basic materials, they will come more and more to the use of power in its electrical form. Now, in our great cities, electricity is used in lighting and transportation. These are its greatest services outside the factories. The multitudes of our cities are transported on electric cars to and from work. When the men are in the shops, the peak load is on the lines that furnish the factories with power. When the men are going to and from work, the peak load is on the lines which operate the transportation systems. And nothing is simpler than that the factories, before and after working hours, should turn their power over to the work of transportation. These are only passing hints, all of them practicable and most of them already in practice, by which the industries of the nation can be of greater service to the community. Our great factories have it in their power to become public utilities in a larger sense than ever before. And using power in chain fashion means that power will be cheaper than ever. And cheap power, rightly used, means high service and high prosperity. And it may all be had from what is now waste.